Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about designing a life of meaningful work at any age. My first guest is Catherine Brooks, PhD. She is an award-winning career counselor, consultant, and writer who has directed career centers at Vanderbilt University, Wake Forest University, the University of, of Texas at Austin, and Dickinson College. Dr. Brooks is a nationally certified counselor and board certified coach. She has worked with thousands of job seekers and writes career transitions for psychology today. She is the author, or maybe I should say co-author of What Color Is Your Parachute? 2021, Your Guide to a Lifetime of Meaningful Work and Career Success. Kate, I am so excited to welcome you to the show and talk about this book because a hundred years ago when I was an undergraduate student, What Color Is Your Parachute was it. That was the go-to Bible. That's correct. This book has been around since the 1970s, and, you know, it has really proven to be a bestseller in the field. I think the advice is evergreen and can be used every single year. And the original author was Richard N. Bowles, and you have uh, taken on the 2021 version to update it and really address some of the challenges that today's workforce faces in this new world of work. Yeah, you know, Richard Bowles had a, a great comment. He was actually a minister, and he got into this whole business of career advice because he lost his job in the ministry. Uh, the church he was in was downsizing, and he started to form a group of other ministers who had been laid off, and that evolved into sort of job-hunting clubs and groups, and it expanded to the point where he was writing uh, exercises and, and, and offering different techniques to help people find jobs, and ultimately became a book. And he always said, my ministry is helping people decide what to do with their lives. And I really resonate with that. I, would, I wouldn't call it a ministry for myself, but I certainly would say that that is my passion and that has been my interest all along. Well, I think when we show up and do meaningful work, when we use our talents to be of service and use to others, we end up having a happier life. Absolutely. And I think the more you can align what you do with who you are, that makes the, the potential for a match between your work and your personal life so much better. I want to add something, a, a, a note of interest, is that you didn't write your first book, you were telling me, in, until midlife. In addition to the 21, 2021 version of What Color Is Your Parachute, there's also a workbook that goes along with that. And another edition of the book 
that is specifically for college students. Uh, what color is your parachute for college? Pave your path from major to meaningful work. That's, that's correct. That's and some serious work, woman. <laughs> You've been busy. Well, yeah, I kind of joke that, you know, one of the things I always talk to people about is what is going to be this, your pandemic story? What are you going to tell a future employer about how you spent your pandemic? And there's lots of answers to that. And, and it's very individual, depending on what you have dealt with, because many people have had to deal with, quite frankly, very, very sad situations in, in their family with, with illness or death even. And so everyone's going to have a different story about how they thrived or how they were able to use their grit and resilience to get through this pandemic. And my joke is I wrote three books, you know, and that just is, is how I spent the pandemic. It wasn't how I intended, but it is how things came about. And the notion of reinventing yourself in midlife and beyond is one that I think is very interesting and inviting. It can be scary. I think mm -hmm. that many of us will, will, uh, come out the other side of this pandemic and say, oh my God, now what? I'm 50-something, 60-something, 70-something, and what do I do? Yeah, you know, the the interesting thing is one of the reasons I've always enjoyed working with college students, and I've run career centers for so many years, is it's such a great time in their lives. You know, that most of them are in their early 20s when they're graduating, and they they have all this potential. It's all about possibility and potential. And I think we sometimes think, well, yeah, that's great at 22, but, but when I'm 45 or 55, I'm not so sure that works as well. But I think it does. I think you have this blank slate that you can create on, no matter what age you are. And you just need to decide, what do I want to draw on that slate? You know, what is the picture that I want to create for the rest of my life? So there's this always an opportunity to reinvent yourself. I agree with you. And I, the, the other thing I think about, you know, from that midlife moving forward place is the wisdom years that when we're in this space of life, we, we might not have the youth, but we have the wisdom, which is extremely valuable. Absolutely. And, you know, I think people worry sometimes. They, they, they aren't sure that an employer will appreciate that or will understand that. And that is part of their, their job, so to speak, is to convey that to an employer. If you are older than perhaps other candidates for the position you're seeking. You know, one of the things Richard Bowles said that I loved was when he was talking about challenges that people have. He says almost everybody has something that might keep an employer from hiring them. But Almost no one has something that would keep all employers from hiring. So you, you have to remember that not every employer is going to resonate to your story of wisdom, but you will find the employer who will. So let's, let's fast forward to the present moment. We are sitting here with the what's next. And there are people out there in the world who their jobs have either been lost because of downsizing or closing of companies or the job has been eliminated due to technology shifts, what would you, how would you guide somebody to land their dream job in today's challenging job market? Obviously reading the book, but what are some, you know, <laughs> some, yeah. some simple, always happy with that. yes, always happy with that. And, and I really, this is really a Bible that I urge everybody to, to, to have in their library because it's, it is relevant throughout our lives, but you know, some quick little interventions that you might um, coach somebody who uh, catches you in an elevator. 
Sure. Well, one of my favorite things to tell people to do is to think about their energy, because I think that, that when you see your energy going up, you know you're excited about something. When you see your energy going down, the draining out of your system, then you know you're on the wrong path. And so I would encourage them to take their most recent job or maybe their ro- most recent two or three jobs and create a list of what I call energy gainers and energy drainers. You know, what were the things about that job that I really enjoyed? What was the part of day that I looked forward? to? And what did I not enjoy? And then start looking for opportunities that will let you do more of what you enjoy and less of what you don't enjoy. And I know that sounds simple, but it it really is a quick exercise that you can do that's going to start to clarify things. Because the most important thing here is to not just jump into the job search. Don't just get on Indeed.com and start digging for jobs. I know that's what most people want to do when they say, I need a job. You've got to pause for just a few minutes uh, for a couple of days and do some of those self-exploration exercises to make sure you're focusing on what you really want and what your strengths are. And that's going to make you a better candidate for whatever position you apply for. And what about shifting industries? And, And let me explain what I mean by that. We might possess all of these skills to do X, Y, or Z. It's always been channeled up until now in one industry, but the, the, um, the, the skills are portable. They, and they can move to another industry where you really will be valued and, and prized for what you bring to the table that is different than perhaps the old industry. And I hope that makes sense what I'm saying. Oh, it absolutely does. It's one of the reasons I tell the college students to pursue a major they enjoy versus what someone has told them they should do, because what you're going to develop is perspective. You're going to develop an approach to doing things, a way of thinking about things that will be different from someone else. And that's what you want to be able to apply then to whatever setting you go into is what is my perspective and how is it different? You know, how do I add a new voice to this conversation because of what I have studied in the past or what job I've been in the past that gives me a different way of looking at this new job. So leveraging your personal style, your personal voice in into an industry that maybe you haven't thought of before. Um, to the younger people out there, those who have spent, um, and I'm listening to my own kids tell me, mom, this year has been really rough. You know, doing Zoom school, Zoom university is just not good. It's not happening. What do you say to those kids? Well, I think that, yes, this has been an unusual year. And so, again, the first thing I go back to is tell me your story. You are still here. You're still in school. You're moving forward. Tell me how you did that. What changes did you have to make? How did you have to adapt? How did you keep yourself motivated? Because, yes, Zoom U is not much fun, and it's much harder, I think, to study online than it is in a classroom. So how did you do that? What skills did you have to develop? What personality traits did you need to to get through that? And be prepared to tell that story to a potential um, employer or internship site or whatever it is that you might be going for, or graduate school for that matter. And and that's for all of us. You know, it's not just for the kids. I I look at one of my kids. I have a a son and a daughter. And my boy, who has had a really hard time with Zoom U, on the one hand, on the other hand, he's a water polo player and the kid gained 40 pounds of muscle in the year. Like he just turned around and he devoted himself to bodybuilding. It was amazing. There's his story. 
There, you know, exactly. This is, this is what I do. You know, this is who I am. I'm the kind of person that when I get a challenge, when this brick wall is in front of me, you know, here's how I take a brick off that brick wall and I turn it into a step. I turn it into the beginning of a path elsewhere. So, yeah, your son's already got this, this great story of, of how he faces challenges and doesn't let things stop him. He just pivots. And your COVID story is you wrote three books, which is pretty right. amazing, you know? <laughs> Right. And, and again, that was sort of unintentional. I had the contract for the What Colors Your Parachute for College, and then they asked me if I would be uh, interested or willing to, to look at the 2021 edition, or the, oh, actually originally the 2020 edition of What Colors Your Parachute, and work on that in the background, which I did. And that was just fascinating and so much fun. And then a colleague and I, uh, again, because we were all working virtually from Vanderbilt, um, a colleague and I decided to write a book on uh, using visual thinking uh, as a career technique and uh, for career exploration. So we wrote a book called Picture Your Career, which is actually a free PDF download. It's a Creative Commons license, so anybody can download it. It's at Vanderbilt University, Picture Your Career. If you just Google that, you'll find it. Um, but it's a, it's a whole book and guide for using visual images to help think about your career. Oh, I love it. This, that's, a, that's a great tip and tool. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Katherine Brooks to learn more about her work and the proliferation of writing that she's done all these books, including What Color Is Your Parachute 2021 and What Color Is Your Parachute for College. You can go to katherinebrooks.com on Twitter at Katherine Brooks and on Facebook, Katherine-Brooks. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we're back, continuing the conversation with my guest, Catherine Brooks. We're talking about designing a life of meaningful work at any age. Let's get back to it. And I also want to mention that the What Color Is Your Parachute book, the original book, was authored by Richard N. Bowles. And Catherine has come in and edited the latest version and found a path uh, with this work, I think, as well. That's true. It's, uh, you know, it's really been an honor to work on these books and to sort of follow in his tradition. I agree with so much of his philosophy of how one gets a job and how one thinks about getting a job. And uh, so it's been a very natural experience to continue this, this writing process. So when we talk about getting a job, going out for the hunt, the hunt today is very different than the hunt was 10 years ago. Very, very different. The world is a very different place. And particularly after, after the post COVID or as we transition from sort of this pandemic year, sort of when the world has become more awake now, what kinds of tips and strategies can you share with everyone about job hunting in this new world of work today? Well, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes it's the more things change, the more they stay the same. There are still certain rules about job hunting that apply, that, that applied 20 years ago and apply now. They've simply been updated and modernized to fit a, a more virtual world or a more tech-based world than in the past. Uh, but there are a lot of basic 
kind of rules that still work. And, and I would say the first thing and probably the most important thing is to think like an employer. When you are preparing your resume, um, when you're preparing your social media, when you're, when you're doing all the things you need to do to get ready for hitting the job market, you want to be thinking about what is that employer thinking? What does that employer want to see? What does that employer want to know? And if you put yourself more in the mindset of the employer, you're more likely to create materials that will appeal to that particular employer. Let's talk about building an online resume, because for some of us, that might be a bit confusing. In the old days, you would have, you would type your resume out, you would have, might have a graphic designer lay it out so you had a very attractive piece of work that stood out from the crowd. That's not how it works anymore. No, I mean, one of the things, particularly with, with, resumes is they are often read by uh, a, a computer, not a person. They, they're simply put into a, a computerized system that, that tracks it and looks at it. And so the computer is not interested in a picture or in a graphic or anything. In fact, probably can't read it. So a more simple layout is preferable if you think your resume is going to be going through an automated system. Uh, but in addition, you also have this, this what we call your online resume, which is your link LinkedIn account, or if you happen to have your own website, or if you have a YouTube channel, or anything that you are doing online really becomes your resume, whether you intend it to be or not, because employers do search their candidates. They do a Google search and they see what is posted online. So it becomes even more important to make sure that you've got a a professional and positive image that's showing up when they do their search. I like what you just shared about sort of building the online resume, that it's not just what you put down on paper or you might put down on an application, but it's building you as a brand um, through these platforms such as LinkedIn. I think it's a wonderful idea, particularly for young people who have been, you know, in this selfie world um, to make them aware that everything that they post is a reflection of them. That's right. And they want to be careful to make sure their security settings are where they need to be. So it's not that no one is saying you can't have a, a personal life online. You can, but just know that, that it's better to make sure things are, are secured and locked <laughs> down and you've limited your audience for certain things. And knowing that sometimes people and employers or people find a way to get through those settings and they find a way to see things that perhaps you didn't intend to be seen. Let's be really clear. So the weekend of debauchery need not be recorded on social media. There you go. Some things are meant to be private. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Young people don't understand that. You know, I, I, I talk about this with my kids and, you know, there's eye roll to a certain degree. And then somebody else, get, of course, it's somebody else gets caught doing something. And then they realize, oh, I might not want to do that. You know, that just doesn't look right. <laughs> Yeah, and it's hard because, uh, particularly for young people, I am so glad that social media was not around when I was in middle school or in high school. I, you know, I can't imagine the pressure of what they deal with day to day with social media, and particularly those who choose to be very active on social media. It creates its own little little world that I think can be pretty hard to navigate, and particularly when you're you're only you know 16 or 17 years old. Um, so I think it's just a matter of finding ways to separate what is your professional and what you want to what you want employers to see and then what is personal and what should be behind some kind of a, a, a firewall or screen that it can't be seen by everyone. 
Let's talk about acing these virtual interviews. You know, up until now, many of us would go in for a face-to-face meeting with a prospective client or employer, and now everything has gone digital. And some people are really uncomfortable in that environment. How would you coach somebody to ace, ace that contact? Well, the first step is to get comfortable with what you're going to say. It doesn't even matter what format you're in if you're not ready to handle the interview questions. So you want to start by creating stories that you can tell that illustrate your strengths, that illustrate uh, your competencies, the things that you have done well in the past, how you have managed, for instance, the pandemic, and, and other kinds of stories so that you are ready to respond to the questions. Then when it comes to the virtual part of things, this is where you want to go, uh, you want to start by turning your camera on your computer and looking at your background and your lighting and making sure that you've put the the screen at such an angle that you're giving yourself a flattering, uh, <laughs> you know, angle, camera angle, so to speak, you know, um, and you want to remember that you're talking to the camera and you're looking at the camera. You're not necessarily looking down at your keyboard. So there's just some, some very basics. And you can record yourself on your computer and you can record, you know, your, yourself with the camera so you can see how, how you're coming across. You know, you can practice on a Zoom account or, or something like that. So I think practice really makes it, makes it a lot better. Um, so there are ways that you can kind of, uh, ensure that, that the things that might be distracting, like a, a background or the dog that decides to come in the room, you know, close the doors, pick a quiet room, tell the family that they need to be quiet for half an hour while you're on this interview. Those things all come into play. And those are things you wouldn't have to think about normally in a person-to-person environment. True. Very true. That, and, and that is very good advice. The practice part is, is, is really key. We're nearly out of time, and I want to just kind of and the conversation with how we translate our personal interests into these marketable skills, because we have our education, we have our experience, then we also have our personal interests, the things that really make us who we are, right? The, the fabric of who mm-hmm. we are. And that might be some of our hobbies, some of uh, our travel experiences. And what I've read about in these books and what I hear you saying is that this is part of the skill set that we can bring and offer to a potential employer. Absolutely. What you want to think about is in your hobbies and in in these interests that you have, what is it that makes you do them well? You know, why do you enjoy it? What is it about your personality or what what is it about you that you gravitate towards those things? And then, again, the most important thing to think about, why would an employer care? Because, you know, you can, you can be really good at playing chess, for example, and, but you're not being hired to play chess, you know, presumably. So why would an employer care? And so that's where you want to step back and say, what is it about me that makes me good at playing chess? Well, maybe I'm a strategic thinker. Maybe I'm very good at planning ahead. Maybe I'm patient. Maybe I'm competitive. And, and, you know, you can, you could go down this list of all sorts of things that might apply to you in terms of playing chess. And that's the part you want to explain to an employer. You want to say, well, I realize you're not hiring me to play chess, but let me tell you why I do well at this and why I think those skills would apply to this job that you're asking me to do. 
So what I'm hearing you say is you are inviting that potential employer to come into your world to see a glimpse of sort of the totality of who you are, that it's not just segmented into what your education was and if can you perform the job or the function that is required. It is really looking at the whole person. Absolutely. And you're connecting the dots for the employer. Yes. The biggest mistake you can make is to assume that the, the employer will understand the connection. Well, I majored in English in college and therefore you should hire me. No, you know, they're not going to make that connection. You need to make it. You need to explain what you had to do to do well in whatever major you took, for example, and why that would actually applies to their workplace. We are out of time, and I want to urge our listeners to purchase What Color Is Your Parachute, the 2021 edition, your guide to a lifetime of meaningful work and career success. This book is in its 50th anniversary, and it's the world's most popular and best-selling career handbook. So if you or someone you know is looking to reinvent themselves, I suggest the book. There's also a workbook that goes along with it, and also Catherine Brooks's What Color Is Your Parachute for College? Pave Your Path from Major to Meaningful Work. So for the younger generation out there, this is a great handbook for them. To learn more about Catherine Brooks and her work, please go to CatherineBrooks.com, on Twitter at Catherine Brooks, and on Facebook, that page is Catherine-Brooks. Kate, thanks for joining me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much, Lisa. This has been a real treat. For me as well. We're going to pause briefly and we'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're talking about designing a life of meaningful work at any age. My next guest is Dr. Amber Fossey. Amber Fossey is the NHS doctor turned artist behind Zeppelin Moon, the hugely popular Instagram account and Etsy store with more than 220,000 followers. Amber is an expert in mental health. And it's through her uplifting and wickedly funny illustrated stories of weird and wonderful creatures that are inspired by her experiences with all the dark and glorious facets of the human spirit and a fascination with animals that we get to speak together today. Amber, thanks for joining us on the show. Welcome. Oh, wow. Thank you. What an introduction. That's that's really lovely. Um, Thank you, Lisa. It's great to be here. Oh, well, it's great to have you. And I just want to say that Amber and I have toiled with technology this morning. We have brought ourselves into the next century by being able to (laughs) on the fly switch platforms to connect from across the pond to be together. Amber, what intrigues me about your story, and I would love for you to just kind of get into it, is as a forensic Mm -hmm. psychiatrist, explain to people what that is and really highlight how that is sort of dabbling in the darkness. Yes. So, I mean, I always wanted to work in psychiatry and mental health um, because it's always a real passion of mine, you know, to, you know, explore the mind really and try and understand the, the workings of the mind and what happens when it 
it sort of aberrates from the norm or what society deems the norm. So that's why I entered into psychiatry. And, and, you know, psychiatry is a real privilege because you get to hear people's stories. And that, for me, talking to people was the part of the work that I really loved. Um, and the more interesting the people, the more fascinating and rewarding the work. So forensic psychiatry for me was like the, the ultimate dream to work with because you're working with mentally disordered offenders. So these are people who um, end up in the criminal justice system. Uh, they also have mental health needs. So they, they sort of cross over into both worlds. And, you know, these types of people are usually um, the kind of people that society looks down upon, rejects, you know, frowns upon because of their behavior or they're, they're not understood and they're often feared. And, you know, I, I sort of just had this passion for thinking, you know, what makes people end up in these situations? And, you know, everybody surely deserves to be um, you know, understood and helped no matter what their situation and where they're coming from. So that's why I spent my career working with these types of people. Um, and, you know, the truth is that often that they have gone through, you know, really terrible um, hardships in their life, which mean that they're not able to cope, you know, um, as well as other people who have not had the same problems, um, you know, in their, in their childhood or, you know, many other causes. And so, you know, I sort of feel that these people need and deserve our help more, you know, even more than um, perhaps people that haven't ended up in the same situations. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the kind of background for the people I worked with. I want to ask you about the pivot. When you knew that being a doctor of psychiatry was no longer serving you or making you happy? Or what happened in your life where you made this shift from the mind work to the creative work, to the making work? Yeah, well, I think I think I entered with a lot of naivety into the career, thinking that I wanted to help kind of liberate and set people free from the kind of restrictive, oppressive systems that we have in the UK. You know, I'm sure they're similar in the US. So the prison systems, mental health systems, where people get locked up for, you know, decades because of, you know, things that they've done wrong, which maybe because they were unwell at the time or, you know, for what have you. And so I entered into this kind of like, oh, I want to help set people free. And the reality is that, you know, um, you can't, it's very hard to change a huge institution, like prison systems, hospital systems, psychiatric systems. And so the day-to-day -day work becomes a lot of report writing and, you know, sort of court reports, which are, you know, dozens of pages long and, you know, very sort of forensic in detail. And you less and less get the time to spend with people talking to them, you know, in, in a kind of healing therapeutic alliance, which is a part of the job I liked. And, it, you know, so that, that kind of work over years is a, it can burn you out a bit it's quite draining and I think anyone that works in in mental health um wherever they are you know can often suffer a kind of burnout which I think is what was one of the contributions for me trying to seek a kind of escapist um kind of you know side uh hustle as it were or you know just escape through my art um I think probably people working in mental health deserve more support and in a kind of therapeutic way outside of work than they than they get had you always been an artist had you had you always illustrated or painted or drawn when you were a, a child or is it something that you learned yeah. how to do 
yeah, I, I, thought I kind of a, a little bit of both. I always had dabbled, but I wasn't, you know, would never said I was any good at it. So, you know, as a little girl, I loved writing stories and poems like lots of children do. And this is one of the things that I've learned in this shift in life is to is to get back in touch with your with that child you know whatever it was you loved doing as a child for me that is the thing that's brought me the most happiness in this shift in life because when I was a child I loved writing poems silly poems you know and, and drawing cartoons terribly like every child does um and when I as an adult you know they got shelved because we're too busy but occasionally I would write poems occasionally I would do cartoons about the things that uh, you know kind of dark humor about work things that get off my chest and you know would kind of process by drawing cartoons um but I didn't at all invest any regular time or effort into that until maternity leave was a big switch for me because I had 12 months maternity leave um four years ago now with my first um baby and and I didn't have to go to work any day I didn't have to do any forensic psychiatry you know zero so then all of a sudden I could invest oh yeah I know you have a baby and I'm not underestimating at all <laughs> anybody looking after babies is hard work um but I did have that little bit of sort of extra time to to, to invest in the creative creative side of life I, I want to talk a little bit about the role of art in poetry in all of our mental well-being and, and mental health. I think that it's something that is becoming more discussed, but there was never mm-hmm. really a direct correlation in mainstream society between that artistic and creative expression and health and wellness. And there is research that has shown that when we have these creative outlets, we tend to feel better, feel more joyful, feel more healthy, or be able to cope with things when we're not. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's partly because society kind of says that art should be good, you know, to be of any value. So I, until very, very recently, would never call myself an artist. It it was only when people on the internet started calling me an artist, you know, that I would started to believe that it might be a possibility because I didn't deem my art of any, you know, value up to the standard that society says. And so you sort of, anything you create, you found on you say it's not good enough. No, you know, no one else will value it. So I shouldn't value it. But actually, I think, you know, one thing I've learned and I think it's really important um, encouraging people to express themselves in whatever creative outlet they fancy is that it just doesn't matter how good the art looks um, in some sort of um, you know objective opinion the process of creating the art is rewarding and satisfying and actually all art is good art I think you know some of the art I love the most is like you know the the, the silly doodles that my kid does you know, or things I do that have gone wrong. I look at it and it's got a silly face. They bring me joy, yeah. you know, and that's the, that's the, that's more worth more than anything. And also when we talk about how it affects the brain, right? When we're activating both sides of the brain, we spend much of our time as humans, as adults working in sort of the, the reason and logic part of the brain and to be able to tap into that creative side. Actually, I think, synergizes a whole brain functioning yes absolutely i mean you know it's long it's long established in um you know hospital wards psychiatric wards and things like that uh, the art therapy you know is one of the sort of occupational therapies for helping people in their recovery and rehabilitation from mental illness but it's it seemed to be very sort of prescribed to like go and sit in this room for an hour and you know draw about a specific 
um, thing. And I, I think it's just um, we need to allow ourselves a bit more freedom in, in our artistic pursuits. And, you know, it doesn't you don't have to sort of feel like you can't do something unless you're committing time and money into, you know, sort of a large portion of your time. If you can just have some kind of format where you can turn to, you know, grab a pad, scribble things down, you know, in that kind of way, you know, or have some clay in your house that you can make pots with something I've started doing recently you know I'm not a potter but I'm gonna make some pots you know (laughs) (laughs) it's fun and why can't we do things that are fun in life you know just because we're big and growing up doesn't mean we can't do these these fun things anymore and I think the pandemic has offered many of us an opportunity because we are forced to slow down you know we're forced to retreat to our homes and our families if we're fortunate enough to be able to do so, you know, some of us can't, you know, we are frontline workers and we have to be out there. But the sort of the upside of the downside is, you know, getting a little bit more quiet and focused and um, becoming makers. You know, you hear these incredible stories of people, you know, discovering things they never knew how to do that they're really good at, you know, like drawing or baking bread or knitting or making pasta. Absolutely. And do you know what I think the secret is? It's like a bit of a trick that you don't have to be good at anything. And like people say, oh, you're talented. You know, this person's talented, that person's talented. That may be. But what is talent? I don't know. Like, you know, you, you can become good at anything or skilled at anything just by doing it enough. You know, if you've never made pasta before, if you practice making pasta every day for the next month, I'm pretty sure in a month's time you'd be, you know, uh, a super pasta maker, way better than me. It's the practice. <laughs> and, and, and that's. It's a practice, and that is a crazy thing. So, I like just for, for, for the art that I create was stick men at the beginning, um, and very badly drawn stick men. And, and now, you know, people request me to draw portraits of their dogs and what have you. Um, and the only reason I say that is because I can, I feel competent at drawing a lifelike watercolor portrait of a dog now because I've just drawn like I don't know a thousand two thousand three thousand animals over the last few years and each time I've drawn it and made mistakes you know um and taught myself just how to paint because I just picked up a paintbrush and dabbed it in and said what does this do um Ah. and so yeah you know we can we can I think we can everybody's capable of so much more than they think Let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with my guest today, Amber Fossey. I want to say Dr. Amber Fossey turned artist. We're talking about her book, and I want to get into this book, Be Wild, Be Free. To learn more about Amber's work, please visit www.zeppelinmoon.com. On Twitter and Instagram, the handle is at Zeppelin Moon. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Yeah, yeah. 
we're back. Continuing the conversation with Dr. Amber Fossey, we're talking about designing a life of meaningful work at any age. Let's get back to it. Talking about Be Wild, Be Free. It's a book, and it's now my new mantra, written by uh, my guest today, Amber Fossey. Dr. Amber Fossey, that is. She is a British National Health Services doctor turned artist behind Zeppelin Moon. Um, she wrote a book, Be Wild, Be Free, and it really is an amalgamation, in my view, Amber, of all of your experiences with people and your passion of art. Thank you. Talk a little bit about the book, the characters, and people's response to the book. Um, wow, I mean, the book has been, been such a journey for me, really. The book is kind of the combination of um, me trying to put my thoughts and feelings about what's important in life um, down into my art, which uh, they're kind of little vignettes of um, animals, that I've looked to for inspiration. Um, so looking to the kind of the wild and the animalistic instincts um, of creatures thinking, you know, okay, if I'm sad, how would like a, a, you know, a lion feel if he was sad? Or um, I, I, I kind of looking at inspiration from, from, the, from the world of nature, you know, how animals don't get bogged down with the same human drudgery that we find ourselves suffering. So that's the kind of where it, it comes from. And I, I try and get a little bit of, you know, humor and reality into the stories because that's the way I cope with things. Um, and so some of the animals are a bit sassy and, you know, they're kind of sticking their fingers up at society. Um, and some <laughs> of the animals are um, you know, so they can kind of look a little bit sweary at times, but um, but in just a cheeky way, you know, not not a vulgar way. And then some of the animals are more sentimental and just loving and trying to remind us about you know the beautiful things in life um, and some you know reasons to um, kind of enjoy the simple things in life and find a little bit of happiness, even though the world sometimes is a big and scary place. Um, so yeah. Um, also, you mentioned about people's responses. Was that yeah? Yeah. I mean, you've got all um, these followers, and you've got a, a a thriving Etsy presence, and so people are receiving the work. And I want to know, like, how they connect. What is it that they say? Um, I, I just feel so lucky, you know, with this, this connection because it really has been such a huge gift to me, and I get inspiration back from from people. I think you know, people say. Um, that they find the, the, these kind of little stories really uplifting and, you know, mood boosting um, and and a little funny kind of reminders about the good things in life because um, I think we just all need a little bit of escapism sometimes, you know? And um, yeah, the kind I of know. art <laughs> and another... Yeah, especially this year, you know, but even before that, you know, it's, it's, it's the way I escape and I think people enjoy coming along for the ride, so a little bit of fantasy, a little bit of silliness sometimes you know and um so I think people just like that it's a bit of it's a little bit for me I always loved as a child A.A. Milne Winnie the Pooh stories and you're immersing yourself in that that world for a little while where um everything's kind of everything's okay but there's still reality there with like Eeyore and his gloominess you know so it's kind of believable that um, but you can escape there and, for, and forget about real life for a little while. And that's the kind of world I try and create with my 
animals as well. And you've, you mentioned that you now have two kids? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And <laughs> Small beasts. Small beasts. Is that what you said? Yeah. <laughs> so how has the reconnection to your own inner child and your own creativity contributed towards motherhood and being a parent to these little ones? I think there's really, they really opened the door for me, you know, to kind of step into something outside of yourself, outside of your day-to-day career and what you think is important and turn that completely on its head by presenting you with just number one, a complete kind of all-consuming um, spirit, these two little spirits that need, you know, all of you all the time. But, but they're, even more than that, the thing that they've done for me is, is, um, they're just so magical and, and you know in the way they talk and look at things even before they could talk you know the baby just stares at the sky the whole time you know and I'm like what are you looking at you know I'm walking down the street tired you haven't slept you know you feel ill and exhausted and you think oh, I can't do this anymore you know with a tiny baby being a mum is so hard and then the baby's just laughing at the sky you know at the clouds and he just he used to think like that constantly and still like take my breath away and they remind me that, you know, the world really is just so beautiful to a baby and so magical. They're so excited to be here. You know, it like it, it gives me goosebumps. And I'm like, oh, well, I want a bit of that, you know. And so I try and learn from that and put that, process that into my art as one of my stories, that kind of wonder of, of, of the world that yeah. the little people have. Yeah, the idea that we can bring curiosity and wonder and delight into our adult experience because we lose that right so that when the realities of the world become more obvious to us we surrender that it seems as though we can surrender that part of ourselves that childlike giddiness you know yeah i feel we do and we'll we kind of cut it off into a little section we say on saturday i can have fun you know or uh, on Sunday, I can relax from all the stresses of the rest of the week. Um, but it's not enough time. Well, I can go on holiday once or twice a year, and then I can, you know, truly have fun. And but we, you know, life flies by, and and I feel like we need to, um, you know, somehow shift from being consumed and devoting all our time to to. I, I mean, I know we have to work. I'm not undermining that everybody has to work. We all have to earn money and pay our bills. Of course, we do. But it's, for me, it's trying to change my perspective on the things I'm thinking about, you know, the things I'm worrying about all day and to try and, and worry less and try and remind myself of the, the good things more often. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. This is like the worry less, be more, you know, To and that's I think the challenge yeah. for all of us as adults is it's hard for us to be, you know, when society has taught us that it's all about the doing and, yeah. you know, our present circumstances, I think, are forcing us to look a little bit more at the being. Yeah. And it's not easy. Obviously, it's not like a switch. You know, I, you know, I can't, there's no way I can like, you know, any of us can just go, okay, I'm just going to stop worrying about everything I've got to do at work and all the chores I've got to do and just be like playful. Of course, it's, the reality is, is it's not that easy, but it's, it is a gradual shift and you have to keep working on it, you know, and I've, and I've been trying to do that more and more. And I have to say that I feel that, um, you know, it is possible to become happier in life through, you know, through these little shifts in, in perspective, you know, um, step by step, one day at a time. I, th- I think that the, the name of the book, Be Wild, Be Free, is such a fabulous mantra, such a fabulous 
way of looking and being in the world. But it is hard for us to be wild and be free in a in a constructive way, you know, to how do we put all of those feelings that we have about what's going on in the world and channel it into an outlet that that actually is of use to us and to society. And I think this is where the creative angle comes in, right? Because you have feelings, you have a perspective about what's going on around you, but you found a way to channel it in a constructive way. Yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, because we can't all be wild and be free. We can't be on holiday 12 months a year. We can't physically, you know, and literally be completely carefree and wild. And I, you know, I'd love to be in a, in a camper van going around, um, the, the Caribbean at the moment, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. So I'm in my house in <laughs> lockdown. Um, you know, I've got some, a lot of parcels to process and, uh, you know, a lot of, um, invoices and stuff and accounting, very boring tasks to do. But, um, if I can carry my soul around with a little bit of whimsy and a little bit of fun and a little bit of joy in my step, just because, you know, I'm here, I survived the pandemic so far. I did, you know, I, we actually had COVID in my family a few months ago, um, but we're here. There's little things that can make me happy every day. And I try and focus on those and they give me some freedom in my mind. And so for me, it's more about being wild in your, and, and courageous in your heart in your thoughts, in your, the way you talk to other people, care for other people, you know, in your, in your dreams and, and the way you carry yourself, you can be wild and free in that regard. To learn more about Amber Fossey and her work, the book Be Wild, Be Free, and her Etsy store, please visit www.zeppelinmoon.com on Twitter and Instagram at Zeppelin Moon. Amber, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. Oh, I feel the same way. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests, Catherine Brooks and Amber Fossey, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day and remember to be kind. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.